You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We're in a series on the seven deadly sins. It's not really necessarily something that you find them listed as such in the Bible. There's a passage in Proverbs about how God hates seven different things, but they're not the seven deadly sins there. It's kind of something that developed over time, and but it's not a bad list in terms of what they are. We're exploring these things because not so much that I'm trying to shame or guilt anyone, don't even think about envy, um, but it's much more of this is the human heart. This is what I'm like. This is what happens, and this is how deadly it can get. But thanks be to God. We have a God who understands, who knows, and who provides. And he is (laughs) able to handle death like no one else can. So nothing can get in his way. He is the resurrection and the life. That's kind of the focus of it. But it's a way to explore how our human heart can be kind of twisted up. So we're going to be exploring envy through one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 73. We'll read some of these verses today. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain. I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands innocent. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever." So according to a lot of scholars, um, they categorize Psalm 73 a wisdom psalm, and Asaph is the one who's ascribed this psalm at the beginning. And it seems that Asaph is exploring the idea, why it's a wisdom psalm is he's puzzled. He's struggling to figure out why is it this way in this world? Why does it seem that those people, he says the wicked, the wealthy, why do they have it all? Why not me? Now, part of the difference of why uh, wisdom is spoken of here is the fact that you can know a lot of facts and you're not necessarily wise. (laughs) Wisdom deals with the fact that Asaph will come to understand in the psalm not only the situation in this world in a new light, but his own human heart, his own heart itself, and how easily he got enmeshed 
in envy and how he got out of it. And so knowledge is just knowing a lot of stuff and information. Wisdom is living into the things of God and understanding the world from God's perspective. And I think that's what is going on in this psalm. And so we're going to study um, how to become more wise about that deadly sin of envy. So from this psalm, we're going to learn, first of all, A, how to understand envy, B, why we must deal with it, and C, where to take it. So how do you understand it? This is how Psalm 73, how Asaph says it. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now the word envy here in the Hebrew is kana. And um, I kind of looked and said, okay, where else is this used, this word? It can mean jealous or envious depending on the situation. And we'll clarify the difference between jealousy and envy in a little bit. But the best example I found was actually in the book of Genesis. And it happens between two sisters, Rachel and Leah. You may know the story, you might not. Both were married to Jacob. And boy, that's another whole story about polygamy in the Bible and how that even happened. But Rachel couldn't have children. Leah was fertile myrtle, man. She was just popping them out left and right. And it says Rachel was kinah towards her sister Leah. So the best example, maybe in your life as well as mine, is what we call sibling rivalry. Any of you ever experienced that? Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Do you know where that's from? The Brady Bunch? Yeah, Jan always felt like the weaker sister, always not getting it. because, And now you start to understand what envy's really about. So the psalmist here, Asaph says he was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. And he describes their prosperity, that their bodies are sleek. They've got great bodies. They've got health. They've got wealth. And their wealth increases. And on top of that, they seem to have a charmed life. He's saying, you know, they never experience the stuff I experience. I go through all sorts of stuff, difficulties, pains, agonies. And they seem to just float through life, you know. No bumps in the road for them. So what is envy? Envy is wanting someone else's life. Now, we use the term jealousy and envy almost synonymously these days. But back when they were first defined or understood, even in the English, there was a difference. Jealousy is when you have something, but you're afraid it's going to be taken away from you, whether it's a relationship or your money or your status. So jealousy, you know you've got it, but you're afraid somebody's going to take it. Envy is when you don't have it, but they do. And what happens is you want what they've got, and you don't have it, and so you resent their lives. You begrudge them for what they've got. You cannot celebrate and say, oh, isn't that great that they have it? It's the, instead, why me? Why not me? So Joseph Epstein, he is um, a secular writer. He penned an article for the New Yorker called The Green-Eyed Monster years ago about this. And in it, he says this, envy asks one leading question. What about me? 
Why does he or she have beauty, talent, wealth, power, the world's love, and other gifts, or at any rate, a larger share of them than I? Why not me? So that's what envy is. But why is that a problem? Why is that so serious? Why do we have to deal with that point B? And I'm going to tell this is where it might, we're going to break it down into four points, uh, delineate four reasons why we got to deal with envy. First of all, that it hides itself. I don't know if you realize this, but other than the other deadly sins, nobody really feels comfortable saying that they're really envious. So Joseph Epstein continued to write, he says, most of us could still sleep decently if accused of any of the other six deadly sins, but to be accused of envy would be seriously distressing. So clearly does such an accusation go directly to character? The other deadly sins, though all have the disapproval of religion, do not so thoroughly, so deeply demean, diminish, and disqualify a person. Not the least of its stigmata is a pettiness implicit in envy. So no one wants to be guilty of this one. You know, if I've got a hot temper, wrath, or if I have lust, well, everybody lusts for something, right? Or maybe pride, well, you know, we, we can kind of deal with that and figure it out. But if I'm accused of envy, it says I'm really petty, that I'm small, and I'm embittered easily, and that nothing is more humiliating. And so envy comes across differently in our lives. We don't necessarily recognize it as envy when we're actually experiencing it. So Asaph says in this psalm, when my soul was embittered and I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant like a beast toward you. In other words, he was offended. Have you ever felt offended? Potentially behind that is envy. Embittered? You know, uh, you see an you feel like, wait a minute, they don't deserve. It's very possible, instead of just feeling a sense of justice, you're actually experiencing envy. Um, look at your life and just think through this for, just for a moment. At the bottom of my problem sometimes, I'm just wondering how often it is envy that's the real issue. I mean, maybe you've got that person at work that just kind of irks you. Why do they irk you so much? Or maybe it's somebody in your neighborhood. You just kind of easily find fault with them. Um, maybe it's because, wait a minute, how do they have, why do they get, why do people think they're so great? Have you ever kind of thought that way? What's behind that? Maybe it's just envy that's really behind that sibling rivalry or that issue or that competition. Now, some of us as well could be filled with self-pity about our lives. Oh, my goodness, I have it so hard. Things have just fallen apart, whatever. And could that not be, though, a chronic form of just envying everybody else's life? So we need to deal with envy because it often masks itself as something else in our lives, and yet it's the root cause of so many of our conflicts and so many of our issues. Secondly, though, and this is where we're kind of getting to how it affects you, envy sucks the joy out of life. 
In fact, it's kind of the black hole and sucks everything into itself when you get into the what about me-isms. So Joseph Epstein said this, only envy is no fun at all, draining all joy from you from its very moment. Um, most of the other seven deadly sins, at least at the beginning of them, they are kind of enjoyable. Gluttony, yes, of course, it's kind of fun, those things. But envy from its inception in our lives just sucks the joy right out of life. And you can ask that question, where do you find no joy in your life right now and it's very possible behind that place of no joy is envy is lurking. But why does it suck that joy out of your life? I think that's our third point here. Envy poisons your ability to joy even the things that you do have. It's, envy is comparison-itis. You know, it's the inflammation of compare. You compare, 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 so that even with what you have, you don't even like what you've got. You never can sit down and just savor the moment. There's always something more, somebody better, something has something more. It's never enough. Maybe, more than ever these days, Envy's the problem that we see in American society where we really struggle right now at any of us ever truly appreciating the body that God gives us. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Um, envy is the marketing tool that Madison Avenue uses against you. Do you realize that? Always showing you the more beautiful, the more perfect, the more wonderful and then selling you how to get it. And so we find fault with ourselves so often we can't be thankful for the gift that God has given us and who we are. And in corporate life, if you've been in a business of any size, man, you know envy is all over the place. Well, wait a minute. They got more sales than I did. That person got it. And you can see the comparison-itis going on. It can become a living hell in some organizations. And you would think of all places academia, like a university, right, Vicki? Um, you think, well, they would know better, and that if somebody else gets published or gets notoriety or has a discovery or gets a promotion, you could be happy for them. But what you end up finding is it's just filled with envy everywhere and there's no better thing than to criticize the, those people in the other department. And I don't even need to go into politics, do I? It's all about envy. It's all, if it's not fear-mongering in the ads that you've been seeing lately, it will be envy, that is, your group, your identity is being attacked, and this group is getting more than you. It's all envy. <laughs> Ruining a person's reputation is the ultimate sport in Washington, D.C. Envy. So <clears throat> that's why you can't even enjoy what you have. And so fourthly, a reason why I think we need to deal with this, and this gets a little more down to also where we can come to the solution, 
It's when you learn and understand what you envy, you start to understand your own heart and what you rely on. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, uh, wrote a book once called Sickness Unto Death. <laughs> Sounds like a great title you want to pick up, right? But in it, his thesis is that God has called each person into a relationship with God where God wants us to find our identity and source of joy in God alone and to center our lives on God. But Soren Kierkegaard says, but we don't want to do that because we hate anything above us telling us what to do. And so instead of finding our ultimate significance in a relationship with God, we will turn to everything else to invest our lives into, whether it is the approval from other people, or our money, or our achievement, or our success, or our looks, or anything else. And you find today everybody is searching for that thing to feel enough and full of themselves. And that's where envy comes in. This can even happen, by the way, with pastors. Um, yes, pastors can be envious. So I hear of uh, friends of mine, other pastors around Florida or Georgia or around the nation, or I go to another church and I can look around at their property and their staffing and their image in the community or anything else. And if my identity is not in my relationship with God, but it's instead in my career, in my success, in how other people see me, then instead of being happy for that church or praising God for what's going on there, I resent it. And it's like, well, wait a minute, I could have done better. I should, do you understand? What about, well, well, they get all the, you know, they're no better than. You can hear all of that, and it's all called envy. And when you understand what you envy, you start to understand what you are trying to use to justify yourself or bolster your own existence. So Soren Kierkegaard said it this way, admiration is happy self-surrender. That is, wow, look at them. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God for that. But envy is unhappy self-justification. Well, that should have been me. I should have. Why are they any better? If your identity is not in God, if it's not knowing that God absolutely delights in you, then your life will always be drained in one form or another by envy. It's like you have a bucket that has a bunch of holes in it, and every time God fills you with good things, it just keeps being drained out simply by the envy in your life. So now we know what it is and why we need to deal with it, but where do we take it? Because we all face this. This is not a, oh my goodness, you shouldn't have it. It's the fact that we all do have this in our lives. So where do you take your envy? And Asaph helps us with that. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Asaph had to come into God's presence. 
He had to come into God's presence and have his life centered on who God was, the God of the covenant, the God of promise, the God of, <laughs> the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who promised his faithfulness to a people who were unfaithful. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not any better than anyone else, but God chose them and therefore chose Asaph and therefore chooses people just because of his unconditional love and compassion. And so when he comes into God's presence at the sanctuary and sees how God set everything up in order to have a relationship, to restore a relationship through the sacrifice, through all of these other things that were going on at the temple, then he knew his God was for him, not against him, that God had established a relationship forever with him, and he could let go of his envy. In the book of Proverbs, it says it this way, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Not only do you not envy sinners because you have a relationship with the Lord, but God gives you a future as well. The solution to envy is not knowing that it's just not good. Don't. Don't do that. That's not good. And the solution to envy is not to realize that what they've got is not worth envying. The solution to envy is the worship of God. To experience the reality of God's grace and goodness. To, in that sense, Proverbs says, fear the Lord, which is not be afraid of him, but to be in awe and wonder at how he would treat me so well. Asaph says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before, toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. In other words, Asaph says, I've been a jerk to you, God. I ignored you. I was beastly. I was mean and ugly. But God, you were still so beautiful towards me. You still loved me. You guide me. You held on to me no matter what. That is grace. Undeserved grace. Unmerited grace. And when Asaph experiences that in the sanctuary and realizes God's grace, he can let go of all this comparison-itis. I don't need to... I am the beloved of God. I am the beloved of God, period. Did you know, by the way, I find this kind of fascinating, two of the four Gospels tell us why Jesus was crucified. And Matthew and Mark put it, it was envy that caused it. So in Matthew... 27, it says, So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. See how bad it can get? Pilate was, it was so obvious to Pilate, they were envious of Jesus. 
They couldn't stand his position. They couldn't stand how good he was. They couldn't stand what he was able to do. They couldn't stand his humility. They couldn't stand his love and his compassion and his truthfulness and his courage. They couldn't stand it. And so they delivered him to be crucified. And what's so amazing is Jesus does not stand up for himself. Jesus doesn't turn it around and point it out to them. He lets it happen. Jesus doesn't look and say, well, wait a minute. I've been. I should deserve. I am, I. He doesn't defend himself in any way, but like a lamb to the slaughter that is silent. He let our envy kill him because he knew that's when it ends. Envy belongs at the cross. And that's where it dies. And Asaph, he says, I was a brute. I was terrible. I wanted you dead, God, for how this thing was set up. But you're going to receive me in glory. Isn't that amazing? The death of Jesus proves God's unconditional love for you and his commitment to you that he'll go through anything to have you. And he will open up a whole new way of life, a future. And he will not have his future. God refuses to have his future without you in it. Do you realize that? He, is, he said, I'm not, I will not live without you. You're, you're going to be with me. You will be received into glory. Now, that doesn't mean I'm always totally satisfied in this world. In fact, maybe it's a good thing I'm not satisfied. There is a sense of justice, but then I can only see it clearly if I am not trying to vie for more and more and more for myself. When I don't have to say, what about me anymore, but I can say, what about them? How are we treating them? How can we rectify the situation for all people involved? And so working for justice can happen, and Christians are probably in the best position to do that because we need not be envious of anyone. We've got it all. You've got a future guaranteed. You've got it all. God does not hold anything back. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him give us all things? There's no way God is holding any good back from you ever. And ultimately, he's going to give you everything you've ever desired that is good for you. And you will never, ever be in want. You will lack nothing. That's your future. He's committed to it. No wonder envy can be no more. As I shared um, last week with my mother passing, she, she had a tough life in some ways, and yet she was praising God through so many things. Um, her two brothers, this was you know, back in the 30s. She, she was born in 1933. And back in the uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s, women were not necessarily treated quite as equal, right? 
When did women's suffrage even come about? Was that in the 20s or 30s? 20s, yeah. But um, her two brothers both got farms, okay? My mom got not even a high school education. Her parents said, you don't need to do that. She could have looked at life and thought, I can't believe, da, 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 da. And I'm sure there were times. But she said, I believe, what is said in this psalm. And one of the last things that she was able to say, even through her dementia, was let praise to our creator rise. She said that 10 times a day towards the last few weeks of her life. She could hardly say anybody else's name. She couldn't ask for food. She wasn't hungry. She didn't want anything else. But she kept saying, let praise to our creator rise. Because she learned from this psalm and from a life with Jesus how beautiful it is to live with him and to die with him. Nevertheless, she said, I have you. And with you, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail me. But God is a strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Lord God, um, thank you. It's a tough word, Lord. I see so often, more often, not, I mean, if I really examine, Lord, how I've lived and how I've thought in so many situations, envy has been a part of it. Forgive us for that, Lord. Forgive me for that. Help me to rejoice when good things happen in other people's lives. Help me to celebrate your goodness and grace for everyone. And help me to see my identity fully in you rather than in anything else, Lord Jesus. When envy does come, Lord, let me be discerning, as Asaph was in the end, of how, how foolish it is to travel down that path. And rather, Lord, help me see the deceptions of my heart and how easily I will try to find my identity in something else. Lord, we thank you that you have shown us ultimately, completely, absolutely, <laughs> beyond our ability to even imagine, Lord, how much you have loved us through your son, Jesus Christ. You gave all. You poured it all out. And you don't hold back. And we thank you for that, Lord God. May that level of joy and thankfulness be with us always, Lord Jesus. And may others see it in us so that no matter we, if we have a lot or a little, in whatever circumstances we can be content and we can work, Lord, to serve others and to serve you more fully and be those who bring joy in this world that is so broken right now. You see how, how envious so many people are right now and how anxious, how, how much they struggle. We pray, Lord God, that you'd bring your healing to them as you have to us. Lord God, we also lift up to you. It's just been a month since Ian came to our area. And Lord, it was something we wanted never to have happen. Thank you for sparing everyone here. And yet, Lord, we know some members have lost so much. We know 
some who are still struggling, Lord, and we pray that you bind us together here in such a way that we can serve one another, care for one another, love one another. We pray, Lord, that you open the right opportunities up for uh, good housing and a, a great future for so many who are hurting right now, Lord. And you know how many thousands of families right now who are trying to figure out what the next step is. We pray, Lord, that you would guide all of um, all aspects of our society from nonprofits and churches to, to our, our own federal and state governments, Lord, and um, businesses and organizations, Lord, to um, create sustainable, safe housing, Lord, that you provide through all of us that we can serve the ones you love, Lord, this community in such a way that we can come together and thrive once again, and maybe even build better community than ever before, Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We ask that this month, as we come into November, that you would work in Thrive, in our membership, that we would seek your face, Lord, and that you reveal to us your your paths and your opportunities you've placed before us. I pray that, Lord, as a pastor in this place, Lord, that you would help me to seek you and seek you alone. To you alone be all glory, Lord God, and that you would work through all of these things for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, we do know that if we say we have no sin, we would only be deceiving ourselves and not you. The truth would not be in us. So we confess our sins to you, and you are faithful and just. You forgive us our sins. You cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For this we thank you. We pray, Lord, as we move into a time of giving ourselves to you through our offerings, and then receiving all that you are in the Lord's Supper, that you would uh, strengthen our faith, open our hands, um, may we be willing to serve you and be living sacrifices in this world and follow you no matter what. All these things we pray in the precious name of the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>